So I was thinking of St. Patrick's Day yesterday and a story I'm going to tell here in a moment. I had a friend at seminary, at Dallas Theological Seminary, who would tell me Irish jokes on a regular basis, and he'd always preface it by saying, I'm Irish, so I can tell you this story. And uh, so I'm going to preface this story by saying, Slaybaugh is an Amish name. Christian Slaybaugh came to Ohio and joined the Amish community in 1805. There's still Slaybaugh's all over the country, all over the world, or Slaybachs or Slaybach. That's different derivations of it, who are Mennonites, who are Amish. We have deep Anabaptist traditions. And so with that in mind, I, I remembered a story that has to be about one of my distant Amish cousins. After all, Slaybaugh is an Amish name. Well, several years ago, an Amish boy and his father, who had to be Slaybaugh's, because it sounds like something we would do, were visiting a city, and they were in a new mall. They were amazed at everything they saw, but they were especially fascinated by two shiny silver walls that would move together and then move apart and would go back and forth. And the boy asked his father, what, what is that, father? The father, having never seen an elevator before, responded, son, I've never seen like this, anything like this in my life. I don't know what that is. And well, the boy and his father watched wide-eyed, an old lady in a wheelchair rolled up to the moving walls. She pressed a button. The walls opened, and the lady rolled in between them into a small room. The walls closed, and the boy and his father watched as small circles of light lit up and down and watched those numbers light up. They continued to watch the circles light up in the reverse direction. The walls opened, and a beautiful 24-year-old woman stepped out. The father said to his son, quick, go get your mother. <laughs> oh, if spiritual transformation were only that easy. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we do experience transformation and transformational events where at points of time, we get off the elevator, as it were, our thinking has changed, the way we live has changed, and our Christian walk is changed. So I want to take you back to one of those times and events in my own life. It was in the late 1970s, probably 1979, somewhere around there. I had become good friends with Pastor Curtis Wieselmeyer, who was pastor here at Grace Baptist Church at the time. At First Baptist Church here in town, I was a deacon. Jan and I were leading the youth group and teaching the high school Sunday school class. We were very involved at First Baptist Church. Jan was in a woman's Bible study with Kurt's wife, Deanna. Now, First Baptist Church, where we were members, didn't have a Sunday evening service at the time. So Jan and I came to several of the Sunday evening events here at Grace Baptist Church. And on one occasion, Kurt invited us to come and hear a man speak. The man had been the speaker at uh, the men's retreat at Warm Lake Camp, and his name was David Needham, who was a good friend of Kurt's. I think he may have been a professor of, of, uh, of Kurt's at one time. David Needham was professor at Multnomah School of the Bible. And we met out in the foyer out there, and I remember it was still wood floor. There wasn't carpet or anything at that time, and I didn't know what was behind those doors at the time, but we met out in the foyer out there, and David Needham had just written a new book that he was talking about, and the name of the book was Birthright. Christian, do you know who you are? And what I heard from David Needham that night was life-changing. 
I began to understand who I truly am in Jesus Christ, what my true identity is as a Christian. For the first time, even though I'd memorized 2 Corinthians 5.17, it was one of my favorite verses. As David Needham expounded the scriptures, it came to life like never before. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And after that night, even for several years, I made that book one of those that I read at least once a year. I've had several of those books in my life that uh, I call them RBDs, read before death. You know, there's those that we need to read. There's those that we need to read often. And, and scriptures like Romans 12, 2 and 2 Corinthians 3, 18 became my life verses, verses that most impacted my life, verses that I desired to live by. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, which I spent several months at Dallas Theological Seminary uh, in these verses. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Christ, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So one night, on a Sunday night in the late 70s, after hearing... David Needham speak. I walked out of the front doors of Grace Baptist Church as Evie sang at the time, remember that song, Never the Same Again. And that's just only one example of what we need to understand as we come to Paul's letter to the Romans in the sixth chapter. That once we are justified, that is, once we are declared righteous by God, that once we are saved and delivered from sin's power, the normal Christian life is that of transformation, from glory to glory. Once we are justified, we begin that great process that's called in the scripture sanctification. Sanctification. The normal to be expected Christian life is one great transformational event and experience after another where we progressively become more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. The transformational events and experiences are not to be rare. They are to be expected. They are to be desired in the Christian life as we come to truly understand and experience who we really are in Christ Jesus. So this morning in God's Word, we enter into one of the great experiences of the study of the Scriptures. We embark upon the journey through Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, it's going to be tremendous, and this morning is really just going to be an introduction and hit on some of the highlights. And since we began our study in the book of Romans, we have swept through these great themes in Scripture. So I want to briefly review those to see where we've been. After an introduction, remember the introduction was the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17 ended that introduction that said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17 he says, For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And we talked about how that verse, the righteous man shall live by faith, has changed Christian history over and over again in the last two 
thousand years. And after that great introduction, Paul launched into a great statement about the sinfulness of man. We studied that in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, sometimes I wondered if we're ever going to get through this. I know man is sinful. I know the world is horrible. I know all this bad stuff's going on. But that whole sweep of truth helped us to understand how utterly sinful man really is, how guilty he is, how hopeless he is, how sin-bound and hell-bound he is. And then he said in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul embarked upon that great discussion of the doctrine of salvation by grace. Grace through faith in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. And so these two have been the two major themes so far. The theme of man's sinfulness and the theme of God's salvation. And through these two great sections of foundational doctrine, Paul has been stressing the dire situation that mankind is in. He stresses the inevitable doom that man faces because of sin. He has been describing for us the rebellion of man against God, man's love for his own sinfulness, man's willful refusal to understand God, even though it's been clearly revealed to him. God had revealed it to to man inwardly, and he also revealed it outwardly, remember, through creation. And then in response to that, Paul presented to us the wonderful, forgiving mercy and grace of God. Grace which reaches down to this unworthy man and offers him full pardon. God offers acquittal through the perfect and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the work of Christ in regard to man is so full and so thorough and so complete and so merciful and so gracious and so comprehensive and so abundant and so magnanimous Sometimes I wonder if I could even say that word, it's so great. They can be best summed up in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, if you want to turn to the fifth chapter, that 20th and 21st verse that we looked off, left off there last week. Verse 20 of Romans 5, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Literally, grace hyperabounded, superabounded, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The enormity of God's grace is shown there in verse 20, that the greater the sin, the greater the grace to cover that sin. That's how Paul sums up those first five chapters. Great is man's sinfulness, and infinitely greater is God's forgiving grace. Now, at this point, we've come to a new development at chapter 6 in Paul's letter to the Romans. We've talked about man's sin. We've talked about God's salvation. And now we move to a third major discussion in the epistle of Romans. Now Paul is going to talk about the believer's holiness. The believer's holiness. The believer's sanctification. The transformation of the believer into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now that you've been taken out of sin and into salvation, now that you are in Christ and no longer in Adam, 
What is the inevitable result of that? And so in chapters 6, 7, and 8, we're going to see the inevitable result of being taken out of sin and into salvation. And the way that Paul introduces it in chapter 6, verse 1, is by dealing with a question that would inevitably come up at this point. You see, Paul is writing the book of Romans as if he were presenting this to a group which included those who might object and object heartily to what he is saying. And the inevitable question appears in verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul was very good at anticipating the argument of those who would oppose him or oppose the gospel. He had preached the gospel enough times to know what responses it generated. Remember, sometimes it got him stoned and left for dead outside the city, and he went back in and and kept preaching the gospel. But he knew what all the what-ifs and all this and everything would come up against the gospel. And so he knew what the antagonist viewpoint was going to be at this point. He knew what he needed to counter. He knew the gaps that he needed to fulfill to continue his argument effectively. And so in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6, Paul anticipates a question that would have been raised. Verse 1, what shall we say then? This is what the people are saying. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if sin is abounding, superabounding, the greater the sin, the greater the grace, shouldn't we just sin more? So God would be more glorified by his superabundant grace. If more sin generates more grace, then should we just continue on? Now that we're redeemed and sin more, so God can be more gracious. If God gets such a thrill out of grace, as one person put it, then we should have God get a lot of thrills, right? Well, if the more the sin, the more the grace, then then man, I'm going to sin like mad so God can get all kinds of glory by dispensing his grace. Now, we might not put it in those words, but it's pretty much the same as thinking, now that I'm saved, now that I'm forgiven, I can live however I want. God has forgiven every one of my sins, past, present, and future, right? I'm going to heaven, and after all, my eternal destiny is secure, right? Nothing can separate me from the love of God that he has for me in Christ Jesus, right? It doesn't really matter if I don't get victory over that particular sin because one day I'll stand before Jesus and I'll be just like him and and God will free me from that, right? Or so much of who I am is a product of my upbringing and my past or how I was treated or how I'm treated now. Even though I'm a Christian, God doesn't expect to change that part of me, does he? Can I just continue in sin and enjoy God's superabounding grace? And Paul answers in verse 2 of Romans chapter 6, May it never be. May Geneta. No, no, not ever. God forbid. Perish the thought. Paul continues, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's the question that Paul is going to take three chapters to answer, to fully answer, in a way that we learn how to live in holiness. That we learn more and more, or we become more and more like Jesus Christ as we are conformed to his image. As we move into chapter 6, Paul is going to show us 
that the true gospel of grace does not lead to what's called libertinism. You know, where liberty gives us the grant, grants us we can do whatever we want. Or we can sin like mad because we're going to be all right, okay, in the end. Anyway, Paul will have none of that. In fact, as he moves into chapter 6, he necessarily and permanently links a holy life with true salvation. He links together the holy life with, with true salvation. In other words... Now, outside of the law and living in grace, you don't need to externally control people who are redeemed. The law was controlling from the externals, remember? Because if you are redeemed, there is planted within you a controlling principle by virtue of a new nature. The new life which is under the control of the Holy Spirit of God so that the thing functions internally not externally as it did under the law. And we're going to see that as we unfold these chapters together. And you're going, I didn't get that part of that part. You will by the time we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8. So where chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans basically deal with justification, chapters 6, 7, and 8 deal with sanctification, if you like those kinds of theological labels. If you want to put another way, chapters 3, 4, and 5 deal with how you get saved, and chapter 6, 7, and 8 deal with how you live after you've been saved. And there's an absolute connection. They are linked together. But I want to go back over to that one life verse of mine. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Page 14, 16, if you're using the Bibles in the rack. And I'm not going to, we're not going to turn to this so I can expound it here because I'm going to immediately jump to the application of this verse. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this, this up, uplifting and very oft-quoted statement. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Anyone is in Christ is a new creature. The new has come. The old has passed away. Well, what does Paul mean? And I, I want to put this in, in practical terms. Paul is telling us here that there is hope for everyone. No matter how vile or how sinful we were, God can transform us. No matter how resistant a person is to the gospel, God can reach us. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. He can take the vilest, the most repulsive specimen of humanity on the planet and transform him or her into a shining saint. There's always hope because God doesn't just make us better. God makes us new. You see that difference? God's just not here to make us better. He makes us new. When God begins a work, he finishes it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now, we might write people off as hopeless. Oh, man, they're just too far gone. God never does. You might write yourself off as hopeless, <laughs> but God never does. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. I thought at the time a businessman put a warehouse up for sale. And as he took the prospective buyer around the warehouse, he pointed out the building's flaws. 
He says, the place has been vacant for a while. Vandals broke out the windows. They kicked in the doors, but I'll make those repairs. Now, don't worry about the roof. We'll take care of those holes. And, oh, we'll clean up all the trash and paint over the graffiti. And the buyer interrupted him and said, don't say another word. You don't have to fix the place up. I don't want the structure. I just want the site. I'm going to remove the warehouse and put up a brand new building. You know, that's what God does in our lives. He doesn't just patch us up, fix us up, paint us over. When he comes in, everything is gone, and he makes everything new. And I know you're sitting there thinking, I don't feel very new once in a while. I don't feel like it. How does that work, you ask? Stay tuned for what we'll talk about in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. But I want to close with a portion of the introduction to David Needham's book, Birthright. Christian, do you know who you are? Because his introduction also summarizes what we'll be about together in Romans chapter 6 through 8. David Needham wrote in the, the introduction to his book, This book is about the marvelous adventure involved in our being the supernatural products of God's new creation. People who are alive for the first time. As we follow this adventure, we'll move from tragedy to triumph, from bondage to freedom, from futility to fulfillment, from darkness to light. At times, the light will appear too bright and we'll be tempted to turn back to the counterfeit comfort of our low expectations. He says the natural world is a comfort, the natural, how do you put that? The word natural is a comfortable word. We can manage it. But supernatural, how do we manage that? Do we actually not belong to the world in the same way that Jesus did not belong? That's what he said. Then how are we to understand those obsessive earthly feelings we all have? God tells us we are alive in a way we've never been alive before. Possessing a birthright we've never possessed before. In a moment, in that moment when we received Christ, God's miraculous birthing act gave us a value, a beauty, a preciousness that lifts us above all earthly measurements. He encouraged us to look deep within at his workmanship, to make that unexpected discovery of passion for him and a holiness that will set us free to be ourselves, free to live and to love. He invites us to believe the unbelievable about the miracles he has performed in us that enable us to say enthusiastically yes to him, yes to life, while at the same time saying yes to who we most deeply are. Could it be that a major reason for the indifference, the epidemic occurrences of moral shipwreck in our evangelical churches and the shattering of Christian homes is because we have seen ourselves as nothing more than Christian forgiven sinners, failing to be what we should be because we cannot stop being what we think we are. May we trust that God in his patience will yet awaken his church to the implication of the bigness of the miracles by which we have become the children of God, the sharers of his life, his joy, his purity, his love, his passion, his peace, in a most mysterious fellowship of the saints, which reveals, as nothing else ever will, the wonder of the glory of God. Shall we pray?
Our Heavenly Father, as we do embark on this study in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, Lord, I pray that you would continue to reach into our lives and to our hearts, that we're going to discover the wonder of who you are and the wonder of who you've made us to be in Jesus Christ in a way that it'll be just one transformational event and experience after another. And in many of those events, Father, we're going to find freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from those things that are not true, and find the freedom to walk in the life that you have for us in Jesus Christ, the newness of life. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.